Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to find out who Steelers coach Mike Tomlin is, you will soon find out that he has nothing to say and everything to say. It just depends on where he is. If you want Tomlin to say a couple words about himself, that's the nothing part. You better get used to the silence. But if he's in the locker room, on the sidelines, or even working to build up a ministry among African-American men, for those who are there, they will tell you that Coach Tomlin just won't stop talking. And that's the most important lesson you need to learn. To find out who Coach Tomlin is, you need to have others tell you, because everything he represents is bigger than just one person, and most importantly, trying to get that information from Coach T is how we get back to where we started, getting nothing while looking for everything. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN senior writer Tom Janode as we talk about how one coach is quietly making NFL history. Now we present Skin Deep by Tom Janode. He is one of the most famous faces in football, despite the care he takes to keep it shadowed. It's a fearsome face, both fatherly and somewhat fanatical, the face of a tender executioner. It shows everything and nothing, and hides everything and nothing. It is stoical, its primary expression a manifestation of will, and its secondary an expression an acceptance of fate. It distrusts elation as much as it distrusts despair, and is particularly good at exhibiting and then instantly recovering from disappointment. Its primary features are those of a man going incognito, a beard, the hat pulled permanently down low over his eyes, which tell all his secrets. His eyes never stop moving until they settle like spotlights on the object of their outrage or affection. It is not the face of a relaxed man, but of one who can't wait and can't bear to see what comes next. Sometimes he darts his tongue or punctuates his sentences by tightening his lips, and yet his face is as unlined as a baby's, as though the act of self-preservation required of every professional football coach, even one who's become a fixture of American Sundays, extends, in his case, all the way to the skin. Mike Tomlin's face is the face of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and therefore of tradition. His face is also the face of African-American coaches in the NFL, and therefore of the most provisional and hard-won progress. He is an emblematic figure whose image is minted on both sides of a coin that never stops flipping, at least in part because he has never had to call heads or tails. Winning has not only been a Lombardi-esque everything during Tomlin's 11 years as the Steelers' head coach, it has also been enough to make questions of personal and racial identity seem at once beside the point and self-evident, which is how he likes them. He has had the luxury of being always himself and never himself, the caretaker of tradition is also the agent of change. But what happens when he loses games he should have won and people start looking for someone, a face, to blame? Look at him now in the dead of winter, enduring a practice on a mild blue sky day. He is instantly recognizable as soon as he steps onto the field, but the fans mark his arrival with a deep murmur rather than a greeting, and he acknowledges them with a gesture, a hurriedly raised hand, but not a glance. No one in the stands calls him by his first name or begs for his autograph, but his presence is still oddly electric. He is wearing a red hat instead of his customary black one, and he has exchanged his standard-issue Property of the Steeler sweatshirt for a plain white jersey and loose-fitting black pants that bellow in the stiff breeze. But the hat is still pulled low. With his hands in his pockets, he goes from player to player and coach to coach, a famously taciturn man chatting them up as if they were guests at a party, changing directions with a little hop step that seems the vestige of an old-school dance move, until at last he settles himself against the goalpost, his right knee cocked at 45 degrees, and the sole of his foot pressed against the pad. It is a pose familiar to anyone who has seen the Steelers take pregame warm-ups. But here's the rub. Tomlin is not in Pittsburgh. He is not coaching the Steelers. A week before the Super Bowl, he is not preparing his team for the championship game, but rather leading a hodgepodge of players at the peak of their powers into a game that underlines the depths of their disappointment, the Pro Bowl. Tomlin, in his every public utterance, spurns all consolations, but here he is, the head coach of the AFC in what is, by definition, a consolation prize. There are nine Steelers wearing red AFC jerseys, 
and the size of their contingent offers like so much else that happened in Pittsburgh over the past year, an example of the abiding success and failure of the man they call Coach T. Success because their attendance in Florida is a sign of the deep respect they have for their coach, and failure because it is still hard to conceive how a team with 10 pro bowlers as well as a quarterback headed to the Hall of Fame could have lost at home in its first game of the playoffs again to the Jaguars. This is not where any of us want it to be, says Garrett Guimont, also known as Coach G, one of Tomlin's assistant who, like all of his assistants, has made the trip from Pittsburgh. But it's still a great honor, and everyone's trying to make the best of it. The Pro Bowl exists on the promise that a violent sport can still provide its participants an Orlando vacation, which is why I've come to a practice that is a combination walkthrough, corporate outing, and weekend autograph show. This is as relaxed as people involved in the business of football allow themselves to get. And as a person who has been tracking Mike Tomlin for the better part of two months, I want to see whether he can relax enough to talk to me. Can Coach T relax? He can with his players, and he can at the Steelers Complex in Pittsburgh, where he is a booming and even boisterous presence, and where I've seen him raise his fist and shout, World Domination, before moving on to get a soft drink. But in public, and especially in the company of reporters, he is so fiercely attached to his all-business persona that his all-business persona seems attached to him and has been since, well... That's what I want to ask. I catch him as he leaves the field and find myself trying to keep up because he never slows down. Coach, I'm the guy who's been asking to talk to you since December. I came down to see if I could make that happen. I'm not interested, my man, he says briskly but not unpleasantly. But coach, I'm here. The one thing I've learned about you is that you like talking to people. Well, so do I. How about... And now he comes to a stop, though not to rest. He has a sturdy, squarish body and a sturdy, squarish face, but there's a shiftiness about him, a side-to-side energy that takes over once his forward motion ends. He does not reveal his countenance. He does not turn his head, only his eyes under the encroaching brim of his red hat. Listen, my man, I respect what you guys do, he says, but I'm just not interested. I'm a worker, not a talker. And then off he goes, setting out on the beeline path he never really abandoned, confirming everything that his players and colleagues say about him and leaving behind a self-description that is only half true. This is not a story about Mike Tomlin. At least it's not entirely about Tomlin, because it can't be. He's about something bigger than himself, which is what makes him the second most famous coach in the NFL and a foil for the first. It is easy to say what Bill Belichick stands for because he stands for Belichick and the Belichick way, system before player, There is not a coach who has succeeded in enduring the spotlight that comes with the job without first figuring out how to be as a coach. And what Belichick has figured out is how to turn coaching into a unified field with everything subordinate to his ruthless quest for strategic and tactical advantage. Because he has won, everything he does stands for winning, even when he gets rid of two of Tom Brady's key receivers, even the minimalist theater of his news conferences, even his self-defeating grudges against certain players, and even, in the end, his mistakes. It's harder to say what Tomlin stands for because he has endured a recent run of postseason disappointments and because he's been saddled with the accusatory accolade of being a player's coach. What he has tried to stand for is nothing less than football itself and the simplicity it requires and rewards. Football is a kind of unified field, humanized. He has his own system, after all, although even within the Steelers' compound, very few people think of it or him in terms of X's and O's. That's not his vision, Coach G says. His vision is so much bigger than that. His vision is to be a leader of men. But football is becoming less simple by the day, as Tomlin has discovered on the field and off, as a national audience discovered on Monday night back in early December when the Steelers played the Bengals in a game broadcast nationally by ESPN. Build as a rivalry game, it turned into a demonstration of just how non-metaphorical a sport football really is, the rivalry touching off a bloodbath, the bloodbath ending with real human bodies littering the field. The game left viewers with one indelible image after another, Juju Smith-Schuster standing over a blindsided Vontaze Perfect, Antonio Brown holding on to the ball after being upended by a helmet-to-helmet hit from George Aloka and Ryan Shazier coming off the field on a cart, 
a spinal injury leaving him without the use of his legs. Such incontestable carnage from such a brutally contested game might have left other coaches shaken, but Tomlin, in his post-game news conference, did not shake. He simply acknowledged the loss of a player known to be one of his favorites, and at the same time the obvious. Make no mistake, this is a tough game, a tough business. We care about that man. We care about all the men. But that's just a tough element of our game, one that we all understand. The gravest charge that a prosecutor could bring against the game of football is not that the men who coach it allow the men who play it to end up with their bodies broken and their brains damaged. The gravest charge is that the men who coach it allow the men who play it to end up with broken bodies and damaged brains for nothing, or at least for nothing more consequential than weekend entertainment, and that Shazir suffered a war wound in a game that only pretends to be war. But I knew, watching Tomlin unshakably speak, that he didn't think about football that way, and that he certainly wouldn't coach it if he did. He spoke as though he thought, as though he knew, that something very real was at stake when two professional football teams play a game, and I immediately wanted to know what it was. I wound up traveling three times to Pittsburgh in an effort to find an answer, talking to players in the locker room and executives in the compound. But I never spoke to Tomlin. And so after the third trip, I wrote him a personal email. I didn't want to talk to him about his life, I said, having been warned from the outset that talking about his life is something he generally doesn't like to do. But I did want him to tell me something. I wanted him to make a moral argument for professional football because I'd seen his face, that face, and I knew that as a black coach, he didn't take lightly the obligation of asking his players, most of whom are black, to sacrifice themselves. He felt it. He declined to respond through a Steelers spokesman. He doesn't always say no. He often says yes, but in the same way that he says no, quickly and permanently. You just have to give him the right reason instead of the wrong one and understand that his decisions fly like lightning from the looming thunderhead of his personal history. A few years ago, for instance, a Pittsburgh pastor named Ed Glover was looking to establish a ministry centered on fatherhood. When he prayed to God, he says God answered in no uncertain terms that he should reach out to Mike Tomlin, whom Glover wound up approaching after a speaking engagement. So I walk up to him and tell him what I want to do, Glover says, and he looks at me and says, You want to impact men, fathers and fatherless kids? I say yes. He says, I'm in. I'm shocked because he didn't hesitate at all. I say, Coach, it's going to be an awful lot of work. He says, I know. I say, so why do you want to do it? And he says, I just buried a father I barely knew. The ministry the two men established is called Man Up, and Tomlin is using his NFL contacts to extend its reach to cities outside of Pittsburgh. And that's Tomlin. There is no story about him that involves waiting. Though he is familiar to fans as a glowering figure with a lethal glare, he is in reality a man who falls in love in an instant and makes other people fall in love with him. He did not intend to end up as a coach when he started coaching. He had been a wide receiver at William & Mary, and one of its former coaches, Bill Stewart, had gotten the head coaching job at VMI and invited Tomlin to come see him. He was getting ready to go to law school, says the late Stewart's sons, Blaine, but as soon as he got to VMI, my father put him in a room with the wide receivers. A week later, he was the wide receivers coach. My father lured him into it. One week, and he was hooked. The same thing happened when Tomlin first visited the Steelers, but in reverse. He is known as proof of the promise of the Rooney Rule, the league requirement championed by then-Steelers owners Dan Rooney that every team looking to fill an executive or head coaching position interview at least one minority applicant. When Bill Cower retired as Pittsburgh's head coach in 2007, Tomlin was the requisite applicant. With five years as defensive backs coach in Tampa Bay, one year as defensive coordinator in Minnesota, in just 34 years on earth under his belt. But the Roonies themselves knew little about him when they met him, other than that they weren't expecting to hire him. We had a couple of internal candidates we felt good about, says the late Dan's son, Art Rooney II. We weren't going to just give them the job, but we'd figured we'd probably hire one of them. Mike came into the interview a long shot. He left a favorite. If you sit in a room with Mike, you're going to be impressed, Rooney says. He had something we were looking for. 
You want a person who's going to be able to get and keep the attention of 50, 20-somethings for most of the year, day in and day out. Presence is a big deal. The Tomlin is a born closer, is the aspect of his personality most surprising to those who don't know him and most obvious to those who do. When I speak to Ed Glover, he compares Tomlin to a maitre d' at a restaurant. If you go to his house, he literally can't do enough for you. When I speak to Tony Dungy, he says that when he interviewed Tomlin for the Tampa Bay job in 2001, I knew after 15 minutes that I was going to hire him. When you meet Mike, you're taken right away by the communication, the openness, and the frankness. And when I speak to Pittsburgh general manager Kevin Colbert, he says that he didn't know Tomlin until he brought him in as a candidate to replace Cower. To this day, we've been together for 11 years, and he's very much who he thought he'd be as far as being an open book, Colbert says. Everybody knows what he's about, where he stands, and how he feels. But he seems like such a mystery from the outside, I say. Is it that he becomes less mysterious once you get to know him? A mystery, Colbert says, is the one thing he is not. There is a disagreement within the Pittsburgh training compound on the question of what kind of coach Tomlin is, a disagreement between the executive suites and the locker room. I don't agree with the outside assessment that he's a player's coach, Colbert says. Perception of a player's coach is that a player can treat the coach as a friend. That couldn't be further from the truth. Coach Tomlin will make no bones about challenging a player or getting after a player or disciplining a player when it has to happen. But then the assessment that Tomlin is a player's coach is not necessarily an outside one. It's just that the phrase has a different currency in the locker room than it does in the offices upstairs. In the locker room, Tomlin is considered a player's coach by one player after another, not because he's easygoing, but rather because he's honest. Indeed, what's startling about talking to the men who play for the Steelers is the unanimity of opinion about the man who is their coach. Listen to cornerback Joe Hayden, and you've essentially listened to them all, right down to the vocabulary. The thing about Coach T is that he's very, very black and white. He's very, very straightforward. He lets you know exactly where you stand. And he lets you know where you stand in front of your peers if you're not holding down what you're supposed to be holding down. If I'm doing it, I'm gold. If I'm not, I either got to pick my stuff up or Coach T is going to tell me he's going shopping. There are no surprises and no excuses, says running back Le'Veon Bell. If there are two guys battling for one helmet, Coach T will let everybody know. Hey, y'all, these are two guys battling for one helmet. I'm going to watch them in practice today. I'm going to watch them in practice all week, and we're going to see who gets this helmet. And so everybody knows. This is the vision that Tomlin has brought to his job, and to make sure everyone understands it, he boils it down to maxims and mottos that players, coaches, and ball boys commit to memory. Of course, every coach has stock sayings. Tomlin, though, speaks jockstrap Zen as a second language. And when one afternoon after practice, I ask offensive tackle Alejandro Villanueva about Tomlin's koans, he asks the player at the next locker in turn, and soon there rises a chorus of enormous men in towels reciting the broken poetry of Coach T. The standard is the standard. The first step of getting better is showing up. Don't take it. Don't get caught less than ready. Don't be that guy. And this, from Antonio Brown, we are McDonald's. And yet, for all his insistence on simplicity, Tomlin remains a complicated man and football a complicated sport. For all the unanimity of opinion concerning Coach T, there remains in the locker room a diversity of experience and so of interpretation. And for all his determination to keep things very, very black and white, he still has to live in a world of black and white and, yes, gray. And so do his players. Take Villanueva, for example. He is grateful to Coach T because Coach T invented Villanueva as a football player. Villanueva had just been cut by the Eagles as a defensive end in 2014 when Coach T invited him to work out as an offensive tackle. Villanueva came to Pittsburgh where he says, Coach T talked to me for an hour and the word he used was trust. Six feet, nine inches tall, the son of a Spaniard who served in NATO, 
Villanueva had graduated from West Point and done three tours in Afghanistan. He recognized in Tomlin a kind of man familiar to him. Coach T is a battalion sergeant major, a really good battalion sergeant major who knows every detail about every soldier in the battalion. That's the personality he has. That's who he is. Villanueva rejects any comparison of football to war. They have nothing to do with one another. But it was his experience in war that put him in a difficult position during the last weekend of last September, when every team in the NFL responded to Donald Trump's denunciation of the national anthem protests, and Tomlin responded as a football coach, putting team unity ahead of individual expression. The night before the Steelers were set to play the Bears in Chicago, he addressed his players and told them that whatever they decided to do, they had to do it together. The Steelers met, and in a spirit of compromise, decided to stay in the tunnel during the anthem. Before it began, Villanueva walked out of the tunnel to see the American flag, thinking he had enough time to rejoin his teammates. He did not. The anthem began, and Villanueva, not wanting to move during its playing, put his hand over his heart and stood apart from the rest of the Steelers, unintentionally showing up a coach he respects while becoming something he says he never wanted to be, a poster-ready symbol of the resistance to the resistance. Because of my actions, there was a huge sort of pushback on Coach Tomlin for allowing this to happen. From my perspective, which is as a veteran, I don't think Coach Tomlin wanted any of this to happen to the team, Villanueva says. I don't think he wanted the protest to start in the first place. He's an African-American from Virginia and understands the struggles of minorities in this country. He's not a person who gets into politics. He's not a person who wants to divide. He wants to unify in everything he does. Every American would love Coach Tomlin if they knew him personally. Villanueva apologized to Tomlin and the team two days after the anthem protests, even though Tomlin said Villanueva had nothing to apologize for. But now he apologizes again, not only to Tomlin, but for him. Now take another example. Mike Mitchell came to Pittsburgh in 2014 as a successor to the hard-hitting safeties who have helped define the Steelers' tradition. He is unapologetically a punisher, and two days after his teammate Ryan Shazier left the field in Cincinnati with no feeling in his legs, he offered an unapologetic defense of his punishing sport in an 11-minute monologue that became notorious on the Internet as Mitchell's rant. It was not a rant, but rather a considered treatise on violence and what Mitchell termed a matter of legacy, on football as a compact a man enters with himself to secure a better life for his family. And when I heard it, I couldn't help but wonder whether I also heard Tomlin. I wound up meeting with Mitchell, who comes to the interview brandishing a letter he had just received from the NFL, notifying him that he had been fined $36,000 for unnecessary roughness. I had wanted Tomlin to make a moral argument for football. But Mitchell makes a moral argument for Tomlin and does so by doing what Villanueva would never do, by comparing football to war. I don't carry an M4 or an A2 and put bullets in people's heads, he says. But at the end of the day, I have a physical job to do. You have to be a combatant. Does Tomlin use that kind of language when he speaks to his team? I take responsibility for the language I use, Mitchell says. But Tomlin does speak as though he's aware of what's at stake in an NFL football game, especially for a black man. And what's at stake? Everything, Mitchell says. And that, for Mitchell, is the difference between Tomlin and nearly all the men who have coached him before. When you get an African-American man as your coach, the communication can be very clear. When Coach Tomlin says something to me, at no point in my mind do I think he's dicking with me or wonder what he's thinking of me. I've had coaches in the past, maybe it's their southern accent, but when they're yelling at you, you're like, damn, how did they mean that? With Coach Tomlin, there's none of that. It's like having a conversation with my father. Oftentimes he's telling you something you don't want to hear, but it's for your own good. I find immense joy in playing for one of the greatest African-American coaches ever to coach the game. And then, two months later, 
Tomlin and Colbert cut Mitchell from the Steelers' roster in order to make room under the salary cap. Talk to white players who play for a black coach and they will tell you that the color of their coach's skin does not matter. Of course it doesn't matter. Why should it matter? It doesn't matter one bit. Talk to African-American players who play for a black coach and they will tell you that the color of their coach's skin matters deeply, powerfully, necessarily, and unavoidably. Of course it matters. It has to matter. It had better matter. You're damn right it matters because it matters just for starters to them. And this is the insoluble paradox at the heart of the racial conversation in the United States circa 2018, that white America speaks of race as a consideration to be transcended, and black America speaks of race as a force to be acknowledged, that white America believes that the purpose of talking about race is to one day end the conversation, and black America believes that the purpose of talking about race is to one day get the real conversation started. Mike Tomlin is a black man who is also a coach. Does that make him a black coach? Or has he transcended categorization and earned the right to be thought of as a coach, period? After all, he is not only one of the most successful African-American coaches in the history of the NFL, but also the only coach since Curly Lambeau not to finish a season under 500 in any of his first 11 seasons. And yet, if he deserves to be thought of as more than a black coach. He also deserves to be thought of as nothing less than a black coach, a coach whose importance lies not in the fixed and monumental face he shows the world, but rather in the heart he shows his players. A coach whose importance lies not in the fixed and monumental face he shows the world, but rather in the heart he shows his players. It is, you see, an African-American heart, which is to say a father's heart, armored and exposed and aching. He is not just a father to his players. He often seeks and finds players who have lost their fathers or who are trying to man up and be fathers themselves. The man with a ministry is also a coach with a mission, the difference being that the coach's mission includes sending young men into the front lines of something very much like battle. It is well known that Shazir was and is one of Coach T's favorites, a player he loves like a son. I was there the week before Ryan got hurt, Dungy says. It was very clear, the relationship that they had, the depth of that relationship. It is also well established within the Steelers' compound that Coach T is working hard to teach safer tackling techniques, repeating, don't hit the head, don't use the head, so many times that it's become one of his maxims. But as every father learns, neither love nor tutelage is any guarantee of protection and Shazir used his head against the Bengals, ending up with an injury that changed the course not just of his career, but also of his life. Tomlin couldn't even stay on the field as the medical staff attended to him, because that was Colbert's job. Or, as Colbert says, my job at that point was to keep Coach informed, and his job at that point was to understand, but to try to win the game. He won the game, even as the game became infamous, because that's what he does. He is not just a black coach and not just a player's coach. He is first and foremost a football coach, so his story is one of moral advantage, unflaggingly accrued, but then devastatingly applied. It is one thing to inspire players with the language of common sacrifice. It is quite another to see them commonly sacrificed, week after week and year after year. But that is Tomlin's job, which he does with eyes shadowed, and heart on one of the yellow sleeves of the Steelers' varsity jacket he wears on the sideline. Along with Dungy, he is one of the two most successful African-American head coaches in the history of football, but he is also a black man who bears the ancient and excruciating obligation of speaking to his sons as if they were warriors and speaking to warriors as if they were his sons. I'm a worker, not a talker, he tells me when I encounter him at the Pro Bowl. In fact, he works by talking and talks incessantly. He's a chatterbox, even during games, especially during games. That's how he competes. When the Steelers played New England in December and Tomlin squared off against Bill Belichick, he spent the entire game roaming the sideline in bright white sneakers, engaging his players in conversation. He talked to them individually and he talked to them in units. 
He talked to them when they came off the field, and he talked to them before they went back into the game. He talked to them when they talked to him. He talked to his quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, and he talked to his defensive captain, Cameron Hayward, and he talked to Martavis Bryant and Le'Veon Bell. He talked to L.T. Walton and Vince Williams and to Stefan Tuitt, and he talked to Mike Hilton and William Gay. He talked to Tyson Alualu and Brian Allen, and he talked to Mike Mitchell and Sean Spence and Artie Burns, and he talked several times and with high passion to Sean Davis, who had to cover Rob Gronkowski and got eaten alive. And what did he say? Stay together, says Hayward, a defensive end whom Tomlin has asked explicitly to lead and be the heart and soul of the Steelers' defense. No matter how crazy the situation gets or how pissed off you get, stay together. Coach T doesn't talk just to talk. What he says is very meaningful and straightforward. You have to appreciate that during a game. It's not always going to be nice, but he's challenging us to get better, and we can challenge each other. And then they lost. They lost because the refs applied the fractal geometry of the NFL's catch rule to a Pittsburgh touchdown and somehow proved that it never happened. But they also lost because Tomlin didn't have any timeouts to stop the clock before the last play of the game. They lost because he forced Roethlisberger to improvise and Roethlisberger meatballed a pass to a New England defensive back. And then three weeks later, he lost again in the Steelers' first game of the playoffs against Jacksonville. He lost because his Steelers were overwhelmed at the outset and because when they finally came within seven points of a tie, Tomlin called an onside kick that, two minutes and 18 seconds left to play, effectively ended a game that should have been contested to the last tick of the clock. He had spent the season out of character, or more precisely, he had spent the season more and more in character with the mask he has worn for so long, that fierce and wary expression of pure will coming slightly dislodged. As his friend and former player Ryan Clark of ESPN says, you get tired of working hard not to be you. Maybe Tomlin got tired, or maybe he finally felt comfortable enough to start showing his personality. Before the New England game, he gave an interview to Dungy, in which he let down his guard altogether and stated forthrightly that even if the Steelers lost, they'd be playing the Patriots again in the AFC Championship game. Most coaches wouldn't say that, even if they believed it, Dungey says. But Mike said what he believed. When the 13-3 and Steelers lost again in the playoffs, there would be no rematch with the Patriots. There would be no inevitable AFC Championship game, and suddenly things were what they never are in Pittsburgh. Different. Tomlin came under attack from newspaper columnists, television commentators, and even a consortium of owners with a minority stake in the team, not merely for tactical errors he'd made at crucial moments of crucial games, but for being himself and then for not being himself. He was slapped for doing what he had been slapped for not doing, for talking too much after a career of not talking enough, and for not only allowing his players to talk, but for being foolish enough to encourage them. There were stories of James Harrison falling asleep in meetings before he was cut, an offensive coordinator, Todd Haley, getting in a bar fight before he was let go, and Le'Veon Bell coming late for workouts before asking for $15 million a year, and suddenly one of the most controlled and controlling human beings on earth found himself characterized as an enabler of chaos. It was not a failure of leadership, and in the end, Art Rooney II is not going to fire a leader of men. But it was a failure of the unified field Tomlin has tried to create because he stood for different things to different people in different situations. The face of Steelers tradition was now the face of the Steelers tradition of underachieving in the playoffs, and the face of the most successful black coach in the NFL was now the face of a player's coach who lost control of his players. Tomlin had tried to change with the times, explaining the latitude he offered his players on social media and in locker room interviews as nothing more than an acknowledgement of a new reality. But in truth, he had not changed at all. He remained what he always was and always would be, a man determined to treat his men as men. That's what made him a player's coach. And that was his moral foundation. The only difference is that he was learning what a coach like Belichick has always accepted as part of the deal. 
the only moral argument that matters in football is winning. I don't mean to stalk him, but I do. During the Pro Bowl week, a resort hotel in Orlando has been given over to the NFL and its minions, including players and their families. It offers them privacy behind a gate and a checkpoint, but it also offers credentialed journalists an opportunity to see pro bowlers at play and at peace, and I take it. After leaving my car with a valet, I walk through the grand entrance only to bump into Mike Tomlin, very nearly literally. As I'm going in, he is going out, and for a moment we stand face to face. He is wearing a gray pullover sweater and, yes, a hat that shadows his eyes, but it's a driver's cap in a snazzy gray that matches his sweater. His wife is with him, and they are going out to dinner or for a night on the town. Coach! I hear myself exclaim. How you doing? He says and hustles outside to wait for his car. I lurk in the lobby for a while to see what kind of car it is but he disappears before I get a chance to see and I find myself witnessing a stream of famous football players along with their wives and children heading to another part of the building down the stairs. I follow and discover a mass of them waiting to board tour buses for Universal Studios, which is open to them and exclusively them from 8 till midnight. But Tomlin is not going to go with them. Of course he isn't. He has never played the fool and he's never going to let anybody get famous at his expense and he's sure as hell not going to scream on someone else's roller coaster. From the start of his life in the public eye, he has reserved for himself the right of refusal, and both then and now he has exercised it with a flourish. The next day I see him again at practice. He's wearing the same uniform he wore the day before, a coach who believes in keeping things black and white, dressed in a white jersey and loose black pants flapping in the wind. On my first day in Orlando, I'd asked Villanueva whether anything had changed after the loss to the Jaguars, and he'd answered, The only thing that's changed is that we lost. You wouldn't be asking that question if we'd won. But they didn't win. And how big a change that represents can be seen right now with Tomlin, a man who coaches as if everything is at stake, sentenced to coach a game that means nothing at all, a parody of a game that shows what football looks like stripped of the sheen of war. He has nothing to lose, and neither do I, and so when the honk of the horn signals the end of practice, I approach him once again. He sees me coming and frowns as though I've stepped on his shoes. Coach, whenever I talk to your players, they tell me about your maxims and your slogans. You know, the standard is the standard. So I've been wondering if you might have one for civilians. I'm wondering if you might have one for reporters. For me. I am hoping that I can get a don't-be-that-guy out of him. But of course, by now, I am that guy. So he stops short and for once faces me squarely with a pained expression. You took me by surprise, man, he says without intending a compliment. And then he shrugs. I got nothing for you. That's not quite right. I've asked him for what he doesn't want to give. He's given me what I don't want to get. There has been a misunderstanding, a question asked and answered, in two different languages, but that doesn't mean that nothing of value has been exchanged. He has given me a look at his face, which is not even close to a unified field, but rather a face that has to choose between refusal and reconciliation, between self-protection and authenticity in every flip of the coin. He is even generous enough to give me the glare before he gives me his back and is gone. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Tom Janode. Tom, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. First off, this was an amazing piece and reported as best as you can because part of what kind of says everything here about Mike Tomlin is despite your chasing and exhaustive efforts, you actually never got a chance to speak with him. Yeah, I mean, my only my only conversation with him was a sort of a non-conversation. It was at the Pro Bowl when I actually uh, approached him after uh, practices two days in a row and got, um, you know, definitely a minimalist response. I think the the last thing he actually said to me was, I've got nothing for you, man. <laughs> and that sort of seems like in a way the, in, the entirety of what he brings to the table almost, which in a more serious way is like a pitch for Seinfeld where what he's doing is about everything, but it's about nothing. Well, really, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the piece opens up with a, 
glimpse uh, or a description of his face. And fortunately for me, his face is, it's worthy of contemplation. I mean, you know, I mean, you go to a museum and you see portraits of people and Mm -hmm. you see, you know, you know, great sculpture and you feel that the sculptor and the artist is saying something by presenting that face to you. And I, I, I came to think of that with Mike Tomlin. I mean, Mike Tomlin's, Mike's Tomlin's face was, was, is really the, the, the central thing of the, of the, of the piece. And he, you know, tries his best in, in a lot of ways to, to keep it hidden. He's described in there as a man who was, you know, accustomed to going incognito or who, mm-hmm. or who kind of carries himself like a man going incognito with his, uh, eyes, his, uh, glass, his hat pulled low over his glasses. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, he's described in the piece as a, a man who looks accustomed to going incognito with his hat pulled down over his eyes, his eyes covered in glasses and his, you know, face covered largely in a beard. But he has one of those faces that, I mean, he can't really hide. No right. matter how much he tries to hide it, he can't hide. And so his, his expression and his, you know, I think, I think, you know, somewhat, you know, divided loyalties uh, are shown through his face. And it also, part of what I got from this piece was, it seems that if his story is going to be told, how he carries himself and how he affects others is sort of how, if you could talk to him, part of what he would want to say is, that's how he would want a story to be told from others and how he affected them. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that I did not get any cooperation for the piece. I mm-hmm. mean, I've talked to, I talked to um, a number of of players, um, both in you know, um, you know, sit down interviews and then just in quick impromptu takes in the locker room. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to the GM. I talked to uh, a pastor uh, with whom uh, Coach Tomlin has started a ministry. Um, so it wasn't like I wasn't, I wasn't that he was trying to, you know, to stop me. Right. He just wasn't, he just was not going to talk. And I was, I was told that from the be- very beginning. And he is definitely the kind of man. I mean, that's one of the things I learned right off. He's definitely one of the, the kind of man who, if he tells you something from the outset, I mean, that's it. He's not mm, going to change his right. mind. Now this part of the story you do go into, and I wonder if you give it a little bit more on it. Because I don't think this has been told or emphasized enough on how Coach Tomlin was even hired in the first place. Yeah, I mean he is he is he is famous for being the exemplar of the Rooney Rule mm-hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. I think um, I mean number one because he was ultimately interviewed by the by Dan Rooney, who championed the right. Rooney Rule in the NFL. Um, so, you know, he became, you know, his, he's the Steelers coach, but the, the other thing is that, um, he really came out of nowhere mm-hmm. on this. And I mean, Art Rooney, Dan Rooney, um, Kevin Colbert, the, the GM, none of them knew really anything about him. And it was his presence in the room. And I mean, the electricity of his presence in the room that made the sale. I, I I say in the piece that you know that he's a born closer mm-hmm. is the thing that is you know really kind of most surprising to people outside the organization and most obvious to people within the organization. Now it seems like in sports and everywhere you look, success breeds imitation, and for with his record and some of the facts that you cite in the piece about how well he's never been under 500 and, uh, and then Mike Mitchell who comes out and talks about how when he hears Mike Tomlin speak, like he's not trying to read between the lines and part of his honesty is it's pure. And when you have a league that is 75, 70% African American and you have the Rooney rule showing like if you, use that you can find these coaches that are pretty amazing. It, I find it interesting that more teams haven't tried to emulate this. Yeah. I mean, I, I listen, I think that, I think that the, that the Rooney role is a, is, is a whole different, um, you know, is a, 
a whole different topic of not a different topic of conversation, but a, a much larger mm-hmm. topic of conversation. Because I mean, I, I know that I know that a lot of players and a lot of coaches are frustrated with the way that the league has, or really more to the point, has not implemented mm-hmm. the Rooney Rule. I mean, there was a um, when I was at the Pro Bowl. I mean, one of the one of the ways that I reported this piece mm-hmm. was that you know, I mean, Tomlin wouldn't talk to me. But he talks to everybody except me. He right. talks to a lot of people. He's a very talkative guy. And so I saw him talking to Russell Okung and I went up there and asked, you know, hey, what, what did you guys talk about? And Russell turned to me and said, right off, he goes, we we're talking about the Rooney rule. Um, and we were, we were talking about, we were talking about black coaches. And this was, this was, this was something that I think that a lot of, a lot of, players are talking about like why hasn't it worked you know why is why hasn't it worked better why is there only one black quarterback coach in the in the, in the nfl right why are there so few black gms and black executives so you know i mean tomlin tomlin was was always sort of like the success story of the rooney rule but it's it's almost as if the league has has taken that success and sort of, you know, put it as a feather in their cap and moved on. Which is interesting because how, um, you know, in going back to all sports, you hear the term like lost the locker room. Right. And it seems that going back to what Mike Mitchell was saying to you, it seems that going in that direction would maybe not, maybe you would eventually lose the locker room if a coach was not doing well, whether he was African American or not. But it just seems like, when you have 70% of your players wondering, I wonder what this person really means if they are not a coach of color, that it just from a, if you're all about results, it just seems like it's counterintuitive to not pursue it more. Well, that was, that was really one of the, the most interesting things about, you know, doing this story is that, you know, the, the Mike Mitchell and some of the other players I talked to, I mean, they really appreciated Mike Tomlin, not just as a coach, but as an African-American coach, as Mm -hmm. a black coach. And, you know, there was a a, a level of, of trust there and authenticity for them that, I mean, they believed in him, even though, you know, the Pittsburgh sort of, you know, really had a devastating loss at the end of the year. Yeah. I mean that that loss to the Jaguar was one of those things that I think through that organization and and the perception of that organization sort of upside down. Yeah. And and yet you know my conversations with the players on that team there was a, a, an amazing degree of unanimity in that mm-hmm. locker room concerning right. Mike Tomlin. And it's all part of the the mantra that you can see some of these successful coaches or players, leaders have been able to do is you want someone not to do their job for themselves, but it seems that there's an unbelievably high percentage of these people in the Steelers who I don't want, I don't want to just do my job. I want to do my job because I don't want to disappoint Mike Tomlin. That's, I mean, that was, that was the thing that they were unanimous about. I mean, they really want, to please him and they want to please him not because he he yells at them or not because they're afraid of him Mm -hmm. they want to please him because and i heard it again and again he treats us like men and you know you know it's an it's an interesting i mean he treats us like men has been like sort of a a phrase that has bounced around the nfl for years and years because i remember growing up like hearing that you know, Vince Lombardi, there was that, there was that, the famous line, he treats us all the same like dogs. <laughs> and, but, but Mike Tomlin, he treats them all the same like men. And that's a, and that is a, is a huge, is a huge thing. And going back to just the Pro Bowl for a minute, um, and while you got some of his stat, like everyone sort of agreed, like to your point about losing the game to the Jaguars and now coaching in the Pro Bowl, that was a big consolation prize. Yeah, but that was the, that was I mean that role was like the most untomlin esque you yes. know thing, and to see Mike Tomlin kind of 
trying to have a good time and trying to loosen up mm-hmm. at the Pro Bowl was from my point of view, you know, completely um, kind of jarring. So, yeah, so I guess, so my question is from, of course, speaking to his staff, like what do you think motivates him to like show up and do that? Is it on because of, to represent the Steelers and to, well, I, I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think it was an option. You know, I mean, I, you know, I think that he was, I mean, he, as the, as the, as the AFC coach that kind of lost in the first round of the playoffs, he gets that job. Well, it just seems that everyone else can find a way to not have to do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about that, but, <laughs> but I mean, cause the, cause the other, you know, the coach that was there on, um, on the other side was Sean, was Sean Payton, who mm-hmm. just had also just gone through a, through a devastating right. loss. So, I mean, so, so, I mean, it is, it is the consolation prize and it's, you know, established by the league, but the, the really interesting part about being there was, I mean, it was totally Steeler country. I mean, there were, there were, um, nine, there were 10 Steelers chosen for the Pro Bowl. Um, one of them being Ryan Shazier, who was Mm -hmm. obviously not there, but the, all, all of the other Steelers were there and, and, you know, when I asked him, was it out of, you know, because none of them tried to get out of it. And when right. I asked, you know, if it was out of respect for Coach Tomlin, they were just, absolutely. And then going to Ryan Shazier, when, um, in the piece where you mentioned how when Coach Tomlin spoke after the game where he was injured, um, it seemed honest, but not necessarily emotional, even though he was, as you pointed out, one of his favorite players. Do you think this is because, um, like, this is an all, like, in that setting, this is my what I'm going to reveal to you. This is an all business approach, or more is it that no one except the team and the people that are in that locker room has sort of earned the right to know how we feel and what we're going through? We're not sharing that with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that that you know that his response was, "We all know what happened here. Mm-hmm. We all love Ryan, but we've all you know we've all chosen." to be in this business and to play this game. And because we are men, we are going to, you know, you know, comport ourselves like men, mm-hmm. behave like men, grieve like men and, and move on. I mean, it was, it was entirely characteristic of, of Mike Tomlin. And going back to the importance of like, we behave like men. He works with Ed Glover to start the man up, yeah. ministry and as you point out he's barely done with his pitch and coach Tomlin's I'm in right now what makes him offer himself up to something that he's in, obviously very intelligent and well thought that he knows when he says I'm in what that's going to mean like that's going to mean like sort of putting himself out there yeah I mean when I talked to when I talked to uh, Pastor Glover he was you know sort of like I think he was like really he was trying to give Tomlin a way out because he was trying to give himself a way out. Yeah. I mean, I think that he realized that, you know, he felt called upon to do this ministry, but he was, you know, kind of wondering why he had been called and maybe was trying to kind of wiggle out of it. Mm-hmm. And so when he went to talk to Tomlin and Tomlin said, I mean, I mean, right off the bat, yeah, I'm in <laughs> without even really, you know, knowing all that much about it. Right. He just like he just, he just was, was interested in the mission so, um, yeah, he was trying to, he was trying to, you know, put in some wiggle room and, and I just don't think that, that wiggle room is, is Tomlin's way. No. And that, and that, and that is, that is definitely what I found out, you know, in my approaches. I mean, it was, there was just not a lot of, well, well maybe, you know, I'll see how this goes. Maybe in a couple of weeks, I'll talk to you. Maybe right. when the season's over, I'll talk to you. No, it's not like that at all. I mean, he said from the start, from the start that he wasn't and he didn't. In uh, Pittsburgh and going, because that's part of it, like the mystery, because it just seems interesting that he would be able to throw himself out there and where other other times of exposure, he may seem a little more cautious crossing the line of getting off the field. So when Pittsburgh GM Kevin Colbert says, you know, quote, a mystery is one thing he is not, end quote, I find that to be, in a way, as I'm going through this, it seems like from the perspective of if I wanted to learn about Mike Tom, or if you did, a little close-minded because of, well, of course he's going to know everything about him. He's the GM of the team. He's going to share, you know, he's going to obviously, he's going to, pay, he's going to take your call. Right. When you're the GM of the Steelers. Right. So, but do, when he says a mystery a, is one that's thing. That's an interesting is, point. When he's, he says a mystery is one thing he is not, it almost like if he lets you in, 
he's not a mystery, but everybody else is sort of left to wonder. And it's something that he's probably just, I'm completely fine with that. Yeah. Um, they talk about him. I mean, all the players talk about him the same way, which is that he is extremely black and white, mm-hmm. that there are no gray areas ever with him. And I think that that's what Colbert was trying to say. He wasn't trying to say that, you know, that I have, you know, that he has some sort of privileged access to, yes. to Mike Tomlin. I think that they were saying that he is, he's like that in any situation. And indeed he was like that with me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was incredibly black and white. He was just like, no, go away. Right. Um, so, but at the same time, um, how one perceives black and whiteness mm-hmm. from the outside is completely different from how one perceives black and whiteness from the inside. And really, and really that's what the story is about. Get, yeah. I mean, in a sense that getting what, what he's willing to give you is well, not necessarily it's all, but, indicating anything. Right. But it's also, but it's also, I mean, you know, you know, whether, whether, you know, Mike Tomlin should be perceived as a black coach, quote unquote, or whether he should be perceived as someone who has, you know, by his success and, and, you know, kind of just the electric kind of power of his presence to have transcended category Mm -hmm. is, is really, is really what the story is, is trying to get about, trying to get at. And it sort of uses, you know, the image of his, of his face as a platform from which to contemplate that. And I know we say we were, we were talking earlier about Rooney rule and how it's interesting that no one's really sort of imitated that. But the other part of a message you kept hearing is the term players coach. And it seems that there's a perception of what that term means, but it seems like coach Tomlin is redefining what the term players coach is. And I think it's interesting that that new definition is something that's not necessarily you hear being emulated throughout the league either. Right. Um, you know, no one would call, no one would call Bill Belichick a player's coach. Nope. I mean, not only because he seems to treat, at least from the outside, players as rather, you know, interchangeable cogs in the What's Belich- back to what you said about Belichick Coach Lombardi. Right. In the Belichick machine. Um, but also no one calls Belichick a player's coach because he wins to the to the degree he's won so people people sort of have created a special category him which for him which is the category of you know quote unquote genius mm-hmm. um no one ever accuses Mike Tomlin of being a genius ever i've never i've never heard that word um, applied to him and it's, and it's applied, I would say pretty randomly throughout the sports world yes. um, to people. And I, and in the whole, you know, two and a half months or that I was working on this piece, you know, I never heard that word, you know, applied to, to coach Tomlin. Um, that question of whether he's, uh, a player's coach is, it was just yet another one of these things that are said about Mike Tomlin that people, interpret differently um like the pittsburgh gm kevin colbert completely rejected the idea that mike tomlin is a player's coach because he's like i i you know i've heard i've heard tomlin you know yelling at players from down the hall how can mm-hmm. he be a player's coach right but the but i mean every player i talked to called him a player's coach but they had a completely different idea of what a exactly. player's coach was it wasn't a guy who was easy on them and who, or who was soft-spoken. A player's coach was a guy who was honest with them. And I mean, that's, that's who, that's who Tomlin is. And that's who, and that's why I appreciate, that's why they appreciate him. It's interesting because it seems like within a locker room, that's a compliment. But then right. if you look at what he did when he, uh, like when Pete Carroll was in New England or USC, and Seattle, anytime he didn't achieve the success they thought he should, everyone was like, well, that's because he's a player's coach and eventually that right. comes to haunt you. Well, yeah. And I, you know, and I, and I, and I think that that, you know, I mean, you know, I've definitely, you know, it's that, it's that, you know, coach, you know, white, I'm sorry. 
it's that coach, um, black coach, you know, categorization thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you know, I, I asked, you know, Art Rooney, you know, does it, does it matter, you know, that Mike Tomlin's a black coach and, and he, does that inform his style? And he was like, no, it got him the interview. But once the interview was done, he's just a coach. Mm -hmm. But then you talk to players and they were like, they just look at you like, you, you got to be kidding me. Of, yeah. of, co- of course, it, of course. They he's said a, to you, it means everything. It means everything. Yes. Of course he's a black coach. Of, of, and of course that matters to us. And of course that affects us. Now you, as we said before with his numbers and you mentioned how the only coach not to have a sub 500 season in 11 years and since Curly Lambeau. Since Curly, which is crazy that that doesn't come up more often. But uh, in that, for many people, as we've talked about the different labels and different people that give labels, that could be his legacy. And it seems that that's not what he would want. Like, it seems that he wants others to determine his legacy by how he interacted with them. So his legacy is not necessarily determined by him, but well, by others. But that's the interesting thing that would happen this year. I mean, I, I would have... I would have agreed with you mm-hmm. all the way through, um, you know, the the first four, you know, three and you know four fifth quarters of the Jacksonville Jaguars game. Yeah. Um, I th- I thought, in fact, that the story that I was really writing was that he was sort of operating at a different level than a guy like Belichick that the that the human that the human part of coaching was was much more important to Mike Tomlin than anything else mm-hmm. but i think that as you know w- when the reaction to the to the loss settled in i think that you know I came to realize, and I think what everybody realized, you know, even in Pittsburgh, was that he might distinguish himself from a guy like Belichick, you know, as a human being, but as a coach, he's judged by the same yardstick, and every coach is judged by the same yardstick, which is winning. So at the end of the day, though, when the sun sets on his career, it almost seems like with his willingness to, you know, be honest, and while these people, these players are men they come to him as adults he's still helping them become better men and it almost seems like that's where if he ever would speak we want to speak for him but it seems that the biggest statement he makes are like the mike mitchells out there that say like no this means everything and the honesty is important yeah i mean i you know i mean i've i definitely talked to um a lot of players who felt um personally brought along by um, Mike Tomlin, mm-hmm. um, Artie Burns, the, the quarterback, cornerback, um, was, he brought his little brother up with him to, to Pittsburgh. He's, he is raising his little brother mm-hmm. and, you know, Tomlin, um, it, you know, didn't just help him. He was interested in Burns as a player because Burns had that responsibility and Tomlin felt that having a player with that responsibility would, you know, would, would help that player on the field and would help, you know, Pittsburgh. That's the kind of guy that he looks for. That's the kind of guy that he wants. You know, I mean, the, you know, Tomlin helped, help Artie Burns find a, find a school for his brother. I mean, they, I mean, he is, he definitely brings these people along, but I, I don't think that, I don't think that in the NFL that you can survive by saying, well, my legacy is going to be that I helped, I helped Artie Burns' his little brother. Right. Your only, the only legacy that you can point to is, like, did you win or lose is, your did last you, game? Did you win? And how many Super Bowls? You know, I mean, Tomlin won a Super Bowl, you know, early in his career, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, obviously, a you know, an achievement and something that he can use to defend himself. But I, you know, I, I as I talk to you now, I wonder if that's like the reason that he doesn't want to talk because what can he say? Mm-hmm. What can he say other than what he says, uh, you know, at the at the podium after a game, which is, you know, the only thing that matters is winning. The only consolation is winning. And, you know, really anything less than that is is something we don't accept. Well, it'll be interesting to see how everything goes for the, the next several seasons and how much of the measuring stick that 
if it comes back to haunt him if he can't get back to the Super Bowl? Well, I mean, that that's going to be a really interesting question because, I mean, I know that the Pittsburgh brass likes Mike Tomlin and, you know, and I think that in general, I think that the, that the town of Pittsburgh, you know, respects Mike Tomlin um, a lot. And I know that the players respect him a lot, mm-hmm. but in, you know, in a couple of years, Ben Roethlisberger is going to be gone. Yep. And, you know, when that happens, and this is just a, a truism in the NFL, I mean, if you have a Hall of Fame franchise quarterback and that quarterback retires, you know, I mean, you know, everything after that becomes wide open. Right. And I and I do wonder, as I sit here talking to you, um, is what would have to happen for Mike Tomlin to lose his job for a man so respected and a man so, you know, in 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 his own hard way, beloved to to lose his job and you know the 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 answer is we don't know. And that in a nutshell is basically sports in the NFL and how cutthroat it is like here today gone tomorrow. Yeah, I mean the, I mean the, really the 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 whole the whole story is about a guy who kind of tries to go through his his business really I think as humanely as possible, but it's not a humane business. No. Well, I'll be interested to follow this in the years to come. Tom, thank you so much for all your time today. That was great to talk to you. Thank you. Okay. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.